Thanks, guys. Um, some of y'all who don't know this, but uh, Pastor Robert has an, a hip-hop album that just went public on Saturday. Um, and some of you may have I watched some of the, the, his videos on YouTube. Uh, he has a few music videos that he has come out with over the last several months that go along with the songs that are on the album. Uh, if you're interested in, in talking to him about that or, or purchasing the album, I think you can purchase it here or he'll give you information about which, how you can purchase that. But it's a great way not only to support him and what he's doing, but also to listen to good music if you're interested. In, if you are a fan of Christian hip-hop, then this is definitely something you're going to want to check out. Um, you can check out his YouTube channel um, uh, on YouTube, obviously and to watch some of his videos that he has put together. And uh, so Robert's been doing, has been working on this for months, and now he's going to see kind of the, the fruit of his labor. So please encourage him with that if you haven't already encouraged him, either through Facebook or already for the service. Encourage him and just kind of say good work. Because it's, it's always difficult when you have a vision about doing something and actually getting it done. It's very difficult and very hard, and there's obstacles along the way, and Robert finished that, and uh, so um, talk to him about that, and uh, see if you can purchase that album from him before you leave today. Um, if you are new with us, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we have a, uh, there's a card in front of the pews. If you're not at a pew, um, I can get you one of these cards. Actually, if you go to that welcome table right there in front of the wall after the service, we can get you a, a kind of a, um, a, a contact card. Uh, we would love to know who you are. If you fill out that card, you can get one of the books from the bookstore back there. Those are not just handy. They're not just some books we found at the Goodwill. Those are books that we have purchased, and we encourage people to, to be reading good books. And so you can have one of those books for free if you fill out one of those blue cards. And so please do that if you're able to. We are in the book of Revelation chapter 20. Um, we are coming towards the end of this series in this wonderful book that many of us have been, if you're, if you're like some of the others that I've talked to, you are just scared to death of this book and uh, just, just have never really gotten into because you're afraid once you get into it you won't understand anything. Uh, hopefully you've been encouraged as we've gone through this that this book is in the Bible for a reason um, and that it is very important for Christ's church to understand and to know and to believe. Uh, what's happening in this book. And uh, I'll say this on the front end. This is, we have tried really hard not to kind of put our flag in the ground when it comes to what we believe about the end times. Uh, I'm going to have to apologize on the front end here because you're going to get a little bit of what, how I view uh, the end times through this passage because it, this passage kind of forces you to make some decisions on some of these some of these issues that are brought up in Revelation chapter 20. Um, so the title of this sermon is Be Faithful Unto Death. Be Faithful Unto Death. Uh, the main idea, I'm going to re read this before I read Revelation 20. Those who are faithful to Christ for their salvation have passed from death to life. And those who remain hardened to, to Christ in the gospel will face the second death. So those who are faithful to Christ for their salvation have passed from death to life, and those who remain hardened to Christ will face the second death. Let me read Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, who bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be relieved for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. And when a thousand years were ended, Satan will be relieved from, the, from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are, in, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea, they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had, been, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they were tormented. Night, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and, him, and on him... On him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what it was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your grace. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts and minds to understand your word, that our minds and hearts would be open to, to hear it, Lord, and that our hearts would be willing and open to respond to your word as well. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, would you stir within us what we should believe and what we should repent and confess. Lord, teach us. Lord, help us to think of people that do not have the gospel. And may this passage compel us, Lord, to show them and to, and to, and to herald and proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. Lord, we pray for teachers and students who are getting ready to start school uh, this week, where we pray for them as they deal with all the uh, organizing and, and just dealing with all the logistics that have to happen, not only to start school, but to start school in the midst of a pandemic, Lord. We pray for them. We pray for parents as they are concerned and worried about their kids going off to school. Pray that you'd bring peace on their heart as well. Lord, we just pray, Lord, for... Um, College students that are coming uh, to USI this weekend, Lord, and at the end of this week, we pray for parents as they drop their students off under this particular situation and circumstance. Lord, we pray for our church, Lord, as we 
uh, have a desire to minister and to reach students, Lord, during this pandemic. Help us to do that well and effective, Lord. Lord we love you. We praise you. We pray for uh, the Strauch family, for JD and, and Gloria, Lord, as they are dealing with uh, COVID right now. Pray for them that you would watch over them, Lord, that they would have a speedy recovery. Pray for Josh that you would protect him from it. Lord, pray for Olivia and her family and her parents have gotten COVID. Lord, pray for Olivia that you would keep her safe as well. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said before, the, the title of the sermon is Faithful Unto Death. Be Faithful Unto Death. And I said this last week for you children, uh, some key words for you to kind of think about and kind of try to listen to. And then when you get home or on your way home, uh, talk to your parents about these three words and how they came out in the sermon text today. The first one is gossip, gossip, gospel, gospel, the good news, gospel. The second word is resurrection, resurrection. And the third word is death. Death, death. Gospel, resurrection, and death. So uh, a few years ago, there was a, a poster or a billboard um, that said, this was around Christmas time, and it was uh, put up by the American Atheist Society, and it said, skip, skip, skip Christmas, skip, I'm sorry, skip church this Christmas, just be good for goodness sake. Skip church this Christmas. Just be good, for goodness sake. What do y'all think about that sign? For some people, they, they probably are, are, are very angry that someone would put that sign up for Christmas, that you should skip church. Some people would agree with it. Some people would be like, ah, I mean, if people want to go to church, that's up to them. Why does it really matter? Why do these people feel like they have to put that poster or that billboard up and, and try to encourage people not to go to church during Christmas? But isn't this what religion is all about? Isn't it about challenging people to be good? Isn't religion about presenting incentives for being morally good? Isn't that what religion is all about? The thing is, though, that the American atheists are right. You don't need to go to church to be good. But that's one of the issues with the American Christianity. It says that go to church so that you can learn how to be good. But you don't have to go to church to learn how to be good. Christianity does not have a monopoly on ethics or good living. Christianity, Christianity is not about being morally good. Christianity is about the gospel about Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Acts 20, 22-24? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit to go and do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That his life is valueless. Because his life is about testifying the gospel of the grace of God. He's willing to die to testify about the gospel. What does Paul tell Timothy before he's about to leave, before he's about to die? What is his last words to his disciple Timothy? He tells him to do what? To preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He says people will want to accumulate teachers that will teach them what they want to hear. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off their myths. He said, preach the word. Fulfill your ministry. What does Jesus say to his disciples before he ascends into heaven? To go and to teach all that he has commanded to all the nations. 
to teach the gospel, to testify about the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Yet, many sitting in the church today, listening to sermons every week, do not know the gospel about Jesus Christ. They say that they're Christians, but they do not know the gospel about Jesus Christ. They know five ways to be a better mom or wife. They feel motivated, they're encouraged to be the best version of themselves. They feel motivated to help those in need. They're more aware of their moral blind spots. They may even say they admire Jesus, striving to do what he did. Pastors and churches continue to creatively present sermons and lectures and videos that have a large captive audience, but people still don't know the gospel about Jesus Christ. Singers and bands write uplifting songs that are listened to by millions, but people still don't know the gospel about Jesus Christ. People want self-help. People want uplifting messages. People want experiences. People want to feel good, but they don't know the gospel about Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, just look at church attendance and who has the most people who go to their church. At Elevation Church in North Carolina, Steve Furtick's church, 35,000 people listen to his messages every week. And I would argue that Steve Furtick preaches a me-centered gospel, which is not the gospel, about Jesus Christ. He will say things about God's promises or about giving you what you want, making you feel good about yourself, helping you through difficult times, but that is not the gospel about Jesus Christ. People have become preacher followers, not Christ followers, because they don't know the gospel about Jesus Christ. They know what their pastor or their preacher tells them, but they don't know the gospel about Jesus Christ. George Whitfield wrote, Do not flatter yourself of being good enough because you're morally so, because you go to church, say the prayers, and take the sacrament. Therefore, you think no more required, required of you. Alas, you're deceiving your own soul. Thousands and thousands of people go to church every week in this country, and they do not know the gospel about Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He says that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a lot of people who think they're Christian, but they don't know the gospel, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. But what about, what about my good works? What about, I, I was involved in my church, I, was, I, I, I volunteered every week. What about all the money I gave? What about all the volunteer opportunities I gave? What about when I went to China with my, with my youth group? And Jesus is going to say, you never knew me. You didn't know the gospel. Good works are not enough. This is why Paul was constrained by preaching the gospel. Why? Because the gospel brings life, not good works. Why would Paul tell Timothy before he leaves, remember one thing, preach the word. Preach the word. Because without faith in the gospel about Jesus Christ, you will perish under the wrath of God. And this chapter is two things. It's a warning to those who have hardened their heart to the gospel. This chapter is a cause of celebration to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So really what I want to do this morning is I want to answer seven questions. 
seven questions. The main point is, have you passed from death to life, or did the second death await you? This is kind of the main point of this whole chapter. Have you passed from, have you passed from death to life, or does the second death await you? So the first question is, is when is Satan bound? Okay, so this chapter really presents seven interpretational issues and questions that you have to, you have to answer if you're going to th understand this chapter. If you're going to teach through it, if you're going to understand it, you have to answer these seven questions. So what, when is Satan bound? And so in verse 1, we see that an angel comes down from he heaven, and John sees this, right? Then I saw. This is not unusual for, for John to start his chapter or with, with this, I saw. So basically you have a new vision that's being presented to John. This is scene number one. You have four different scenes in this chapter. And so John received a new vision. He, he, this happens countless times in Revelation. And this includes a new vision, not the next chronological event. So you don't think, well, then he saw a new, a new event which followed along with the last event. As we've gone through this book, we know that there isn't really any chronological order to things. John just get, gets these new visions, these new images about what's going to happen. And this vision focuses on Satan's demise. So an angel holds the keys of the abyss in a great chain. We see this uh, language of a chain mentioned uh, two different other times in those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before we will, you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who have held on to the faith through death are shown here as souls in, on throne, a part of God's heavenly court. Because of the testimony of Christ, the word of God, because they have, they have stayed faithful to the testimony of Christ, they were faithful to God's word, they are now given authority. And they are a part of God's heavenly courts. We see that in Jesus' letters to the seven church, he would tell them and encourage them of this fact. He says in Revelation 2, 10 through 11, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and if you are faithful unto death, you will receive the crown of life. You will receive authority, and you will reign in my kingdom. Those who did not worship the beast or receive the mark. So we're not thinking only of martyrs, those who were just killed, those who were beheaded, those who were eaten by lions, whatever, whatever. That these are all Christians and saints who have died and were faithful to Christ to the end. There's a joining of the dead of saints, and they are all with Christ. And it says, and this is the third question, what is the first resurrection? What is the first resurrection? There, that these groups, these dead saints who have been faithful to Christ until the end, they share in this first resurrection. What is this first resurrection? This, this question is one of the big dividing marks in end times theology. What this means. 
And here's, here's what I'm going to say here. There are Christians in this room. There are Christians outside this building that differ with what this means. And I, we're, all in the same, uh, uh, we're all in the same team here. We're all faithful to God. We're trying to understand this difficult book. It's difficult to understand visions and apocalyptic literature. So what I think is going on here, what is this first resurrection? Based off the, the previous question of how is, when is Satan bound? And he's bound after Christ is raised from the, de- is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. The Spirit comes into the world. The gospel goes to all the nations. That Satan is bound for an undetermined amount of time, a thousand years, but I will argue that it's a, it's a symbolic amount of years. And then, then this first resurrection is not a bodily resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection. And, and we see this often in the literature of the New Testament talking about resurrection. It says in Romans 6, 4 through 11, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into a death and his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of our Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will no longer die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see how Paul uses this language of life? That it's not something you will receive later. It's something you receive now when you're in Christ. You're united in his resurrection. You have newness of life now. So there is something going on when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you are a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a change in your life. You're born again. We use that language. You experience a spiritual resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come. We think of John and Jesus in John 5, 24 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, and an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In this one passage alone, you see two resurrections. One spiritual and at the end of this passage, a physical resurrection. So I believe what Jesus is, what, what, what John is talking about here in Revelation 20 is a spiritual resurrection. Those who are in Christ, those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior are regenerated and made new by Christ. What does does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone, no one can come to the Father except through me. In Jesus, you have life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result for works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that you have received life. You don't receive life at the end. You receive life now when you accept Christ and live in Christ. When you are in Christ, and Jesus has already told this to his one of the seven churches in Revelation 2, 10 through 11, they will receive what? The crown of life. They will be regenerated. They will be born again. They will pass from death to life. Even one of my favorite passages in the Bible, uh, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, you have the valley, the valley of dry bones, right? What happens to those dry bones? They come to life and they're giving new hearts and new spirits. I believe Ezekiel 37 is talking about this first resurrection, which is the resurrection you receive when you trust in Christ. If you are a non-believer to this day and you receive the gospel today, you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You are then made new in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You have passed from death to life. You are now a saint of Christ and you have been resurrected. The Spirit regenerates you, and you are a new creation in Christ. And it says that those who have been, that are in the first resurrection, the second death has no authority over them. They are protected from the second death, which is explained as the lake of fire, which is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And if you're in the book of life, which is those who identify with Christ's righteousness, the Lamb, Christ Jesus, has already suffered death for you. He has been slain. Therefore, you possess the resurrected life of Christ. And what does is, what is John end this section with? He says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the completion of a thousand years. They had no share in the first resurrection. Those who, don't, who are hardened to the gospel, who have never received Christ Jesus... They are not in the first resurrection. They do not have the spirit of Christ, do not belong to him, therefore they are not united in his resurrection. So what does this a thousand years mean? This is a big question. The millennial kingdom. Is it literal or symbolic? John says that those who have received the resurrection who come to life will be priests and will reign with Christ. And I'm arguing that this is the immediate age. This is the intermediate age between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return and that we are now living in this age where we already as Christians have been raised from the dead. I mean, we've been risen from newness to life. We have been received the, 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 the Holy Spirit. We've been re we regenerated. We are now in his body. Christ is our head. We're united in his role. We serve in his kingdom. We receive honor and privilege being in Christ's kingdom today. You're royalty already. You're in the house of the Lord already. And being a priest in Christ's kingdom today is not like when we think of royalty in the, in the real world. It's not like like royalty and being a part of Christ's kingdom is like being a part of Queen Elizabeth's kingdom or royalty. It's not like a burden that Harry, Prince Harry or Meghan Merkel couldn't, couldn't bear, right? They couldn't bear the burden of being royalty. We are royalty in Christ's kingdom, and in his kingdom, his, his yoke is light, his burden is easy. 
So that's what I think is going on with this thousand years. That is a symbolic number. We've seen this already in Revelation, that thousand years or numbers can be symbolic. I see this as a symbolic amount of years, and that it expresses the church age. And that we've already received the first resurrection, that we are, as the church, a part of Christ's kingdom already. And Christ reigns through his church on earth. The next question is, is when is Satan released from his prison? You see this in verse 7 through 8. And this is important because, again, if you, if you think that the thousand years is a literal thousand years and we haven't entered into that time yet, then that means Satan has yet to be bound. And then that means Satan will be released at the end of those thousand years. We've seen, though, in three different other occasions in the book of Revelation, this final battle. So are there four different final battles? Or are there one final battle? I would argue that there's one final battle, and John talks about this final battle four different times. He talks about it in Revelation 11, in Revelation 16, and then in Revelation 19. It's the same final battle. You think of Armageddon, you think of the end where God conquers and, and, and judges the people. That's all, this is happening again here in, verse, in chapter 20. And it says that he is released. And that he uh, will come to deceive the nations. We see that the beasts and the false prophets, that they deceive the nations. We see this in Revelation 13, 8 and in 13 through 14, that the false beast and the, uh, the, the beast and the false prophet deceive the nations. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. And it says in verse 11, then I, verse 13, it is performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast is, is deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live. So what's happening was is that we've already been exposed to this language of Satan and his beasts and the false prophet deceiving the nations. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-11, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's already at work. Only he has now restrained it. Will it do so until his, he is out of the way? And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them strong delusion so they may believe what is false. That Satan, that God, there's going to be a time where God is going to allow Satan to deceive the nations. We're not in that time right now, but it was, it's coming. It's coming in the future where Satan and his false prophet and his beast will be able to deceive the nations to worship him. And he will gather those who he has deceived for battle. And their numbers are as sand on the sea and they surround the camp of saints in the beloved city. The beloved city is a term that is mentioned already in Revelation, in Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it, and I will write him on the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God will be on him, the new Jerusalem. 
And this is speaking of the, of the enemies of God surrounding his church. That God loves his city. He loves those who are who trust in him or his children. That's what the city represents. His beloved city or, the, or, or his people. And the, the final battle is, is Satan trying to conquer and destroy God's people. But we find out, very similar to what we found out in Revelation 19, that God quickly subdues Satan and his enemies. That those who are part of the army of Satan, this is point number F, that those who are, who are these people in the army of Satan, similar to what we see in Revelation 19, they, that all who have been deceived who have not been sealed by God, who have refused to repent, or hardened to the gospel, or those who have been deceived by Satan and are working with Satan to conquer God's people. But what happens? Fire comes down from heaven. It devours them. Similar to what we see in 19 with the, with the birds gouging the flesh. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And they're tormented day and night into forever. Who is in this second res resurrection that we see here at the end of this passage? We see this great white throne in, in verse 11. The holiness of God is represented here. And God is presented and he is judging. And heaven and earth flee the presence of the one sitting on it. The old is done. The old has come to an end. There's no place for heaven and earth. The old heaven and the old earth have been taken away. We see in Revelation 21.1 that there is a new heaven and a new earth being presented. We are at the end. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And I would argue this is everyone. Saints, righteous, unrighteous, have all been raised. All are before the throne of God but these books have been opened, and one of the books is the book of life. Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the last and final resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The books are open. The one book is the book of life. Those who are righteous, those who have trusted in God are in this book. Focus here is on the final judgment of God. So that's why you don't see a lot of language about this resurrection of the saints. The focus here in the end of chapter 20 is on the unrighteous. The focus is on their judgment. But secondarily, those who are in Christ are excluded from God's judgment. Why? Because Christ has already endorsed judgment on the saints' behalf. He was slain by the blood. He ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nations. The will of the Lord was to crush him for their iniquities. But too often, people don't want to hear that truth. They don't want to hear the truth that you are saved because God crushed the iniquities, your iniquities through his son. Because people don't know the gospel. They have no savior. They have no advocate. Their works and deeds will be exposed. What does it say here? That the books are open and the books are all their deeds and all their works. And if you are trusting in your works, no one will be saved. They will be cast out because your works and your deeds are not enough. Only the works and deeds of Christ are enough. Without the gospel about Christ, you will be judged. 
And the dead were judged from what they had, what had been written in the books according to their works. They had trusted in their works. They had trusted in what they did, and that is not enough. And the sea gave up the dead. The death in Hades gave up the dead in them. So who experiences the second death? This is the last point. Who experiences the second death? Each, those who were not in the book of life, were judged according to their works. And if you have not trusted in Christ, that means you have no advocate. That all you have is your works, your resume, and you'll find out that that is not enough. Your good nature, your deeds of kindness, your terrible service will fall short. Death and Hades is now thrown in the lake of fire. All the, all the angels that have been kept in, we see in Jude chapter 6, the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. It was kept in eternal chains and utter gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That all who have God has chained or who have kept in death and Hades have now been thrown in the lake of fire. And it says that the second death is the lake of fire. That those who are not in Christ will receive a spiritual death. They'll be separated, they'll be lost, and there'll be no coming back. There's no father to return to. Being cut off from the graces of God. You're not going back to a loving father. The eternal state is separation from God, and there is no salvation. There is no redemption. There is no more hope. And, and, and John ends this, this, this vision, he ends this chapter, if anyone is not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Those who have not, are not in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, if they have hardened their hearts to the gospel, they are judged. And there are so many people that have trusted in their good works. They have trusted in the idea that they go to church and that they're a good Christian and they do all these things, yet they don't even know the gospel. And they're going to come to the end of days and they're going to put their trust in their works. And the book's going to be open. It's going to show their works. And it's going to show them that they are not qualified to be in God's kingdom and they will not have Christ to advocate for them and they will go into eternal hell. And that is just the facts of the case. And the reason why I started the sermon with talking about all of this different churches and pastors who aren't sharing the gospel because the pressure and the temptation for pastors and preaching today is to be more creative, to have a social media focus, to be so, uh, so focused on followers and people following you and excited about your videos and excited about your preaching and your blah, 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 blah. And you get so focused on that that you forget to preach the gospel and you preach to thousands of people every week and no one knows the gospel. None of them do. And they think that they're Christians when they're not. There's a, a video, a, a movie, a documentary on Netflix called The American Gospel. And the issue with Revelation especially is that there's so many churches and pastors so focused on prophecy that they miss the gospel. There's so many churches and pastors so focused on materialism that they miss the gospel. There's so many churches and pastors that are focused on politics and they miss the gospel. They're so focused on traditions that they miss the gospel. They're so focused on morality and they miss the gospel. 
And therefore they have people in their church that have, don't know the gospel. The gospel has been forgotten. The gospel has been replaced. The gospel has been hidden. And it's been rejected. There's a, a, a study, there's an article going around that talks about the, the, the reality of what's going on in America right now. That 50 plus Americans in, in the United States call themselves Christians. I think it's like 54, 55% of Americans call themselves Christians, but yet only 30% of them actually believe that their salvation is in Christ. More than 40% more than, uh, of Christians think that their salvation is based on their works. 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of mainline Protestants, 41% of Evangelicals, and two-thirds of Catholics hold that they are saved by their works, not by Christ. That's a devastating truth. That many in America, in this community, in Evansville, maybe even in this church congregation who call themselves Christians, believe that they're good enough. Your good deeds are never good enough. And Jesus said it to the rich young ruler, right? What do I need to do to, to inherit eternal life? And he says, and what does he says? He says, he says, Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? Why do you call me a good teacher? Only God is good. But then the, the ruler started to try to argue to Jesus that he was good enough to enter into eternal life. Every religion except one has been recycling the same line of thinking, trying to obtain righteousness through hard work, sacrifice, charity, and piety, but yet it leads to death and not life because being good will never be good enough. Have you been deceived to think this? Do you know others who have been deceived to think this? That their good deeds are enough to earn their salvation, to raise them from spiritual, from a sinful nature, or that maybe God is too loving to judge them, that God will save all regardless of their hardened heart towards him. Do you know people? Do you know people who believe that they're Christians, but yet actually trust in a works-based righteousness and do not know the gospel about Jesus Christ? Because the, the fate of that view and that belief is spiritual separation from God for eternity. And the only way to the resurrection and the life is through Jesus Christ, and without Christ, you will die. That's why it's so important to be faithful unto death through Jesus Christ as the only path to eternal life. It's the only path. So reflect on the gospel this week. Reflect on its truth. And think about people that call themselves Christians, will on Facebook claim to be a Christian, but yet actually are trusting in their own good nature and their own good works to receive salvation. And that is a lie. There is no life in your good deeds. There's only life in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Praise you so much, Lord, for its conviction. Lord, that we who have Christ have been raised from the dead. We have received the newness of life. We praise you for that, Lord. And Lord, we come to you helping us to reflect on our own hearts and our own lives. Have we been deceived to think that our good deeds are good enough for you, for a holy God? Lord, if there's anyone in here who believes that, Lord, would you convict them of the false truth of that? Lord, they would trust in Christ for their salvation alone. Lord, if they know people who claim to be Christians but do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
They have not received, they have not experienced the first resurrection, yet they await a second death. Lord, pray that you would help them and, and, and compel these dear brothers and these dear sisters to share the truth of the gospel with them. Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.